But meanwhile, let's bring another nation into our attention today, which is India. Now, experts believe 2023 is supposed to be the year of India. But given the fact today, in reality, the relationship between China and India is also in this unpredictable situation. So that's why today it's time for us to go back to revisit the relationships among India, China, and Russia. And how much do we believe that India is going to be the key player able to solve much greater problems? Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Mr. Muhammad Zishan. Again, Mr. Zishan is a policy analyst and editor-in-chief of the Freedom Gazette. And also, he's a policy advocacy that he built a site and based in India. And he's a regular writer on international affairs, and his key areas of interest are Indian foreign policy, international political economy, and also economic development. Well, Mr. Zishan, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you, Will. An absolute pleasure to be back. Well, sir, again, I am so honored to see you're back in India. I know you're traveling between India and the States back and forth. And surely this is the critical and interesting moment for us to talk about the nation of India along with other countries. Now, initially, again, when I discovered you, because the latest article that you wrote, which is entitled, Is a New Russia, China, India Bloc Forming in the East?, now, keep in mind, the war in Ukraine still takes place. And despite the fact the Chinese leader recently had a phone conversation with the current president of Ukraine. But meanwhile, you ask a very good question is Putin's grand plan hinge on an Indian China fall. And can he convince the Chinese leader to ease the tension with India? Now, let's ask the question. Why do you think Putin will be very much interested in participating, easing the tension between China and India, what is he going to get if he takes the actions? Look, um, you know, what happened with the war in Ukraine is that, in a sense, the global economy was fragmented. Um, you know, the West, which is America and its allies in Europe, essentially locked Russia out of the global financial system. Mm. They kicked Russia out of the SWIFT banking system, which was unprecedented. And now there is talk of, you know, Europe in, in a sense essentially banning exports um, to Russia, I think, mm. is, is, is what they're talking about. And so I think, you know, in, in a sense, it was a question of decoupling entirely from the Russian economy. And alongside that, obviously, you also got America trying to decouple from China's economy as well. Uh, and so what's happening is that with the proliferation of sanctions and tariffs and trade restrictions and whatnot, uh, and then, you know, also stuff like friendshoring, which is that you would do trade uh, only with your allies and best friends. Um, you would you would try to, you know, sort of restrict your supply chain to only your allies and best friends. What's happened is that essentially there is a fragmentation of, of the global economy. Now, that means that, you know, for Russia, you know, the, the, the question of transacting or doing trade in the dollar has become near impossible. Mm. And so Russia has been looking at, at other ways by which it can trade and, and have economic partnerships with other countries. It's been trying to do that with India and China by conducting trade outside of the dollar, 
um, trying to create a sort of a parallel financial system outside of the one that has been traditionally dominated by the West. Um, and that is an interest that China shares with Russia. It's also an interest that India actually shares with Russia in the sense that India does want to reduce its own dependence and exposure to the dollar. Um, and in a sense, you know, sort of um, find ways by which it, it, it can kind of um, uh, make itself less vulnerable to potential sanctions from the West or economic restrictions from the West. So what's interesting is that I think a couple of weeks ago or so, uh, there was a vote in, uh, you know, at the UN in Geneva uh, talking about, you know, the resolution was about whether or not, uh, you know, countries should levy sanctions for human rights purposes. Mm. Um, that was a very polarizing resolution in the sense that, the West, which is Europe and, and America, essentially voted saying that, yes, you should be allowed to, you know, levy sanctions on countries for human rights violations. But India voted against against that notion, the sense that India voted saying that you should not be allowed to levy sanctions for human rights violations. China and, and you know, other countries in, in, in the non-Western bloc also voted in that way. So... It's very clear to me, I think, that India is, you know, very wary of the fact that America and, and Europe are, are able to use clout in, in the financial system or, or the dominance of the dollar in, in that way uh, to try and lock countries out of the global economy or the global financial system. And so I think that what India does want to do is to, to actually try and find a way by which, you know, the global financial system can be more diversified. The rupee uh, is is a is a larger part of India's trade with other countries, uh, and and its own dependence on the dollar is, is in some sense uh, reduced. That's one I think very large piece of the puzzle, uh, but but that's I think that's a very you know big part of of where the global economy mm. is is now headed. There's another IMF report that came out very recently that talked about geoeconomic fragmentation, which essentially is. You know, the wonkish term for what I'm, I'm talking about, which is that the global economy has fragmented uh, based on, you know, countries that are allies of the West on one side and then everybody else on, on, on the other side of the divide. Well, Mr. Zijan, I couldn't agree with you more. I think today when we talk about global globalization or um, I want to be careful, another term is called a political polarization. This is not just about this geopolitical change. And also we're looking at this economic outlook as well. But meanwhile, I want to go back to the article. Again, as we mentioned before, China, Russia, and India are right now are the key players in another powerhouse, which is called the BRICS. But meanwhile, we know that today, in reality, no country prefers taking side between the West and China. Because we know that today, for globalization, joint effort, it's much greater uh, demanded than anything else. But in reality, we know some countries, they gradually shift their attentions away from the West. But meanwhile, they're paying much closer attention or looking for ways to engage with China. But again, let's coming back to another reality is when we talk about this role of India. Recently, again, Mr. Zijian, I'm sure you all uh, follow this piece of news as well, that this quad relationship, which India 
plays a major role in promoting this military and also this economic agenda. But on the other hand, China is not really a big fan of the Quad relationship. As a matter of fact, and China is trying to seeking its own ways to counter its influence. Now, again, the question is very simple. Why should Russia jump into the favor if China and India are cannot see eye to eye to each other simply because the two countries are standing on different geopolitical and also economic side? What do you say to that? You know, I, I think that it's interesting that you bring the quad up as one of those points of difference between India and China, because, you know, on most other issues, I think India and China largely do agree. It's, it's the border and then the fact that India is a part of the quad. But, in a, in a, you know, I think in a more long term sense, the quad is beginning to lose relevance uh, within mm. the U.S. strategic uh, framework in, in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, White House and, and Washington might say to... The opposite, to the contrary, they might put out an Indo-Pacific framework document from time to time that talks mm. about how the Quad is a, an integral part of the puzzle. But if you look at the way that America is starting to diversify its security partnerships in, in Asia, uh, you know, the Quad is beginning to lose its relevance as a security coalition in the Indo-Pacific, right? I mean, you've got the AUKUS on one one, one hand that uh, you know, brings Australia, the UK and the US together. Mm. Um, and now Australia is going to be supplied with nuclear-powered submarines uh, under that deal. Uh, they've taken it forward. Um, and in East Asia, you've got the thaw between Japan and South Korea, which means that the potential for security cooperation between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea now increased a lot. And then in, in Southeast Asia, you've got the Philippines, which has been able to give naval bases to the U.S. I think that they've given something like four naval bases in, in, in the last uh, few weeks. So uh, what you're looking at is that the U.S. is kind of diversifying its security partnerships in the Indo-Pacific region. But at the same time, you don't really hear about anything substantive from the Quad. You know, the mm. Quad, the Quad, you know, revived an in interest because of India's border clashes with China in 2020. But in the last three years, the Quad has not done anything particularly noteworthy on the security or military front, which is what America is, is particularly interested in. But at the same time, you've seen that all of these other coalitions on, on America's, on, on Asia's periphery or China's periphery have actually advanced a lot more. Uh, new deals have been signed, you know, naval bases have been opened up, submarines are being sold, um, you know. And, and so when you set that against the fact that the Quad in some sense starts to look a little bit stagnant, um, you know, I think that part of the reason for that is that America is, is, is now beginning to realize that maybe it cannot really rely on India or India within the Quad uh, to the extent that America would like to rely, particularly in the context of, you know, a potential war in Taiwan. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot of apprehension in Washington about, you know, is India really going to support America in, in its, in its uh, you know, efforts in Taiwan, whether that's logistical or military or whatever it is, is India really going to give that support, kind of support? Or is India going to continue to sit on the fence as it has in, in Ukraine? So I think that there is, in that sense, uh, you know, within the Indo-Pacific, India's role as a security partner to the U.S. is starting to come under the scanner. There, you know, there is, there is some kind of a trust deficit developing there. Uh, which China, if it wants, can exploit. But that's pretty much on, on, on China's side. 
Um, within the BRICS, um, I think it's interesting that the BRICS uh, has become somewhat more relevant after the Ukraine invasion because mm. uh, India, Brazil, uh, South Africa, China have all taken pretty much the same stance on Ukraine, which is to sit on the fence, uh, which in a sense actually does help and support Russia's campaign, right? And all of them have continued to have relationships with, with Russia, economic and otherwise. Uh, and recently you had uh, President Lula da Silva from Brazil mm. actually make a statement to the to the effect that, in a sense, the West has to share some part of the blame for what's going on in Ukraine, which is essentially the same language that Putin and, and Moscow actually speak. Um, so you find that there is convergence also there within the BRICS between these these different countries. Um, and then you also got the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that brings Russia, India and China together alongside several other countries. So there are a number of forums on which I think that India and China can build themselves. Uh, and that's very much in in Russia's interest to see, you know, some kind of a thaw here. Um, I don't know if China is beginning just yet to be aware and conscious of the fact that India, in, in some sense, uh, is starting to lose relevance within America's largest strategic security framework and coalitions in, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, but I think that fewer and fewer Americans are starting to think and talk about India in that light particularly given that today you've got other partners like the Philippines or Japan or South mm. Korea and others that are actually treaty allies of, of the United States that are willing to go much further than India is on, on you know, a number of these issues. Mm. Mr. Zishan, again, I want to go back to this economic perspective. Within the article, again, you uh, wrote, and I quote, Russia is now India's fourth largest trade partner and is still surging. Again, when we look at this globalization, I think today people tend to pay less attention on this geopolitical rival. But meanwhile, we're very much interested in knowing how the global economy is going to move forward. Now, coming back to China, one of the signatory projects under the current leader, which is Belt and Road Initiative. But let's keep in mind, and also you mentioned in this article, that Russia is definitely on the side of the Bell Road Initiative. As a matter of fact, I think because of the existing economic partnership, the two countries grow much closer and despite the war in Ukraine. But meanwhile, Mr. Zhishan, let's bring another reality into our conversation is India is not part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Hypothetically, again, rumor on the street, it's possible that Russia can swing India into this Belt and Road Initiative, but in reality, there has to be a lot more conversations uh, taking place before we can settle down. So here's my question is, why not ask India to join this Belt and Road Initiative if this can be one of the effective solutions to soften the uh, the deadlock between China and India at this moment. And also, don't you think it's actually beautified the relationship among the three of them if this Belt and Road Initiative can thrive based on this joint effort? What is your say to that? I think, I think broadly speaking, strategic convergence is there within within you know that ambit as well within the Belt and Road Initiative. I think the problem for India is that 
the CPAC or the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is part of the Belt and Road Initiative and it passes through Kashmir on territory that India claims but Pakistan controls. So in a sense, the CPAC, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, is taken by India to be an infringement on its territorial sovereignty, mm. right? And so that becomes part of that border conflict or border tension that India has got with China. Now, if China is willing to give that up in some sense, or if there is a compromise solution that India and China can reach on that, I mean, the CPEC, by the way, is, is not proving to be particularly economically uh, you know, feasible for China. I mean, mm. there, was, there was a case, I think, a few days back where a Chinese worker somewhere in Pakistan was arrested or prosecuted on blasphemy charges. That's right. Uh, because, because he was accused of having uh, made, you know, done something blasphemous against Islam. That's right. Belief. So there was, there was a tension there, you know, between China and, and, you know, the general sense of radical Islamism within Pakistan. So there are problems with CPEC and, and Chinese investment in, in Pakistan as well. Not everything is hunky-dory there. But for as long as that investment and particularly the project that passes through Kashmir continues to be a part of the overall bouquet of Belt and Road Initiative projects, I think it's unlikely that India is going to sign up to that. Um, but, you know, there, there are certainly I think India does uh, believe that it would like to have closer economic ties with a more diversified set of partners. Mm. Um, and so, you know, obviously India has got trade ties with the United States. It, it would like to have trade ties with, with Europe as well. Um, it has trade ties, as, as you pointed out, with Russia, particularly after the war. That has really expanded uh, in ambit with you know a lot of the import of oil that comes from Russia into India. Um, and I think that India does see China or or economic ties with China as well as you know in, in as, as being in its interest, provided that it's not used as leverage by China to you know coerce India on on the Himalayan border. So I think it all sort of hinges on the border. It's it sort of hinges on the territorial question in Kashmir, uh, Arunachal Pradesh, these other contested areas. If if you know temperatures have can be cooled down there mm. uh, and some sort of trust and confidence can be built, then I think that these other issues that that we're talking about can can start to fall into place. But at the moment, there's no real indication that China is willing to do any of that. Mm. Mr. Dishan, again, I want to go back to the article. Again, there's something that you wrote quite interesting. And I quote, you said the border with India, again, regarding China, it's also increasingly become a footnote in China's own strategic priorities as we see it today. But meanwhile, over the last several months, China has been positioning itself as a strategic alternative to the U.S., everywhere from the Ukraine to the Pacific and also to the Middle East. But again, let's talk about the reality. There are numerous occasions that China made crystal clear that we will never be the replacement of the U.S. And also, of course, we never believe that we're supposed to be positioned as the superpower for the world. But meanwhile, let's talk about this in uh, the tone from the Chinese government. How should we understand 
the lines or how should we understand the words behind the lines? Because again, given the fact, as you mentioned before, more and more international leaders and diplomats today are visiting China. And also they're making this message crystal clear regarding the territorial dispute, regarding human rights issue and regarding economic agenda. Now, when China dialed down such claim, how much do you think we should really believe and we should actually try to dive into this? That's the first question. And the second one is most people believe that this year for India is going to be very busy, not only to be the host of upcoming G20, but meanwhile, again, India is trying to competing with China neck to neck with this economic agenda. If China could dial down such rhetoric, does that mean that India still has the advantage to normalize the relationship on this economic level. What do you say to that? I, th I think that China definitely has superpower aspirations and ambitions. You, you know, I mean, obviously, China keeps talking about this multipolar world order. And that's where, as you pointed out, it wants to try and differentiate itself with, against the U.S. in the sense that China and Russia want to, you know, kind of paint America as this hegemonic, unipolar superpower mm. that kind of, you know, uh, stamps his authority all over the world uh, and is a cut above everybody else. And in that context, they talk about countering American influence by bringing in a, a multipolar world order. But I don't think that I have any doubt in my mind that China is, is an aspiring superpower uh, to the extent that America is today a superpower. I think China does want to replace America in that sense. Mm. But it's another matter whether that's actually practical, right? And, and I think that China recognizes that militarily and economically, you know, and also culturally on soft power, China recognizes that America is far ahead of China. And it's unlikely that China is going to catch up to that anytime soon. It's, you know, even though there are folks who are writing about how America is second and China is winning the, the, the race and, and whatnot, there are a number of very unique advantages that America enjoys uh, economically, militarily. The fact that it's got, you know, military bases all over the world uh, and, and is able to mobilize those troops and resources very quickly. China does not have that kind of presence just yet. And it could take several, several years for China to actually catch up to that. So while China is kind of playing second fiddle in a sense on, on these uh, on these fronts, I think that China recognizes that diplomatically it's very smart for China to mm. you know, sort of talk about a multipolar world order uh, and thereby sort of garner more support around the world uh, amongst countries that are somewhat, you know, maybe uncomfortable with American hegemony just as much. Uh, and that includes countries like Brazil, South Africa, India, you know, and others in, in Africa and Latin America and, and in the Middle East as well. Um, so it's it's I think it's a part of diplomatic rhetoric, uh, but not 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 you know so much as a strategic objective. I, I don't think that China really believes as much in a, in a multipolar world order. I think China believes more in a hierarchy of states with China at the top. That's you know sort of in in my sense is that that's where Xi Jinping wants to take China. That's his idea uh, of of Chinese uh, foreign policy. Um, you know, in terms of India trying to build its economic relationship uh, with China, you know, again, I, I think I think that India is is very skeptical about Chinese rhetoric, just as as I pointed out, 
I think that India does recognize that China has superpower ambitions and aspirations, mm. but I'm not sure that India is is entirely convinced that that is all that bad a thing. I think what India is more worried about is, is its own border, and you know, as China, if if China becomes more aggressive, assertive, powerful, and influential mm. in in global affairs. What does that mean for the border between mm. India and China? I think that is a big question that India has tended to ask itself, particularly in the last two or three years uh, since the border clashes in 2020. Um, but India is just as uh, suspicious of Western hegemony, if, if not more. Uh, and and it, it would like to see, I think, in some sense, and that in that sense, I think India is probably more sincere when it when it talks about a multipolar world order. They would like to see a world order where, you know, no one country is, is, is really hegemonic or dominant enough to be able to push its own agenda. Uh, and India recognizes that in that sort of a world order, maybe India would have space to, you know, kind of be its own independent third pole or whatever else. Um, that's, I think, what, what India would, would like to see in, 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 in global affairs. Uh, but ideologically speaking, I think that India does tend to have a lot more in common with China today. Um, you know, than it does with the West. And so when you talk about a Chinese-led world order versus an American-led world order, I don't, I, I can't say for certain whether India kind of, you know, uh, leans one way or the other. Um, I, you know, if, if I were to uh, venture, a, a, you know, a, a raw assumption on this front, I would say that India probably reckons that it would be able to do a lot more under the Chinese-led world order uh, than it probably can do within within a U.S.-led world order. Uh, but that's largely because of the sort of convergence or common ground that India enjoys with China on issues of global governance and norms and values uh, and, you know, the rest of that, that that I've written about frequently in recent times. Um, but, you know, uh, that aside, I think... That, that India still is worried, though, about the border. And so if if, if there can be a, a solution of some kind to the border, uh, then China would find India to be a much more easy partner to work with. Well, Mrs. Zijan, I want to wrap out our conversation again, as we mentioned before, and you are a international um, expert on, again, on Indian foreign policy, of course, on this economic development. But meanwhile, also you travel back and forth between New Delhi and also Washington, D.C. Now, again, when we look at America today, political polarization is happening all over the place. And of course, next year, it's rather crucial for the U.S. Not only we're looking at this presidential election, again, the future of the leader for the world, uh, for the free world, and also we're looking at this upcoming foreign policy agenda. Now, help us to understand, right now, some people believe that we are going to receive another four years of Joe Biden, and also, meanwhile, Donald Trump has been hardly running on this campaign. Help us to understand, from your perspective, how much does the foreign policy matter today, especially regarding China India and Russia, and do you think that U.S. today it's actually sending the wrong message to the world regarding dealing with China, Russia, and also trying to collect more effort from the allies? What do you say to that? You know, I think foreign policy has been a bigger part of the Biden presidency than it was for Donald Trump or Barack Obama. Mm. Um, I, th I think, in a, in a sense, Biden's presidency has been more dominated by foreign policy concerns than domestic policy concerns, which is, 
very interesting because you know when don you know when 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 joe biden became president in in 2020 uh 21 there was an expectation that he was going to be you know more focused on post covid economic recovery and and inflation uh, and obviously you had a couple of banks collapse after he became president in the last a uh, few months mm. uh, so there was an expectation i think when he became president that he was going to be looking at those things because you know populism was was a big part of his his agenda uh you know during his presidential campaign rather anti-populism was talking about strengthening democracy at home and and trying to counter donald trump and you know assuage the concerns of trump voters and trying to heal the the country and so on but ukraine taiwan china russia has actually been what has dominated headlines during his presidency so far um and so i think that that's you know that's that's going to be a part of his legacy now if you if you were to ask me whether that's going to be how it is uh, during the presidential campaign uh going forward i think i'm going to be very skeptical about whether foreign policy is going to play that much mm-hmm. of a role i think that domestic concerns will play more of a role during the campaign um obviously his presidency is going to still be focused on the war in ukraine and so on but i think on the campaign trail you'd probably find joe biden talk more about domestic issues and that's already happened right when biden actually announced his reelection bid that's right he put out a video where he talked about you know his economic uh, achievements over the last uh, over the last couple of years uh and and he talked about the fact that he wants to get that job finished uh, moving forward so they, he didn't talk as much about foreign policy concerns as he did about domestic economic concerns and i think that's going to be a big part of his his campaign uh, moving forward and and certainly for donald trump if he were to win the nomination uh, or even ron desantis or anybody else winning the republican nomination i think that you would find that they are much more focused on domestic economic issues uh than they would be on foreign policy but once they become president whether that's going to continue to be the case uh, you know that that remains to be seen i think that the next presidency whether that's a biden presidency or a trump presidency i think foreign policy concerns are going to be a big part of that that presidency uh with donald trump uh, if he were to return you know you would probably continue to see him uh, in the in that withdrawal phase that that you know he uh, went through during his four years as president uh, but you've got to remember that Donald Trump actually or other Trump supporters and fan base uh, including Fox News and conservative news media outlets in the US uh, have a very strong affinity for Russia even today despite the war in Ukraine and so on um and and it's very evident in in their coverage of of the Ukraine war they're unwilling to sort of uh you know call uh the Ukraine invasion an invasion uh they're unwilling to call it in 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 as blunt terms as uh, as other people in the mm. west are um and so even under a trump presidency i think you will find that foreign policy is a very big part of the overall story Well again Mr. Zishan you said it and again I couldn't agree with you more mainly when we look at the foreign policy it's not just about the US China India and Russia and I think today going back to the initial conversation that you and I we had under modern globalization geopolitical polarization seem become less and less important but meanwhile everyone is asking the question who can fix the economy and who can drive the economy forward and i think that's what everyone is very much concerned 
right now. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Mr. Zishan. Again, Mr. Zishan is a policy analyst and also is the editor-in-chief of the Freedom Gazette. It's a policy advocacy site and based in India. He travels back and forth between New Delhi and Washington, D.C. I strongly encourage everyone to follow his work through social media. Of course, his latest article, which is entitled... Is a new Russia, China, India bloc forming in the East? Well, Mrs. Zijan, thank you so much for taking your time. And again, we hope that you travel safe and always uh, uh, give us more insights and also helpful analysis. And we'd love to hear from you as you return to DC. And also, of course, give us the latest political news, not just about the US, but also about the world. So thank you so much for doing this.